Welcome to EIS Navigator, the podcast for UK venture capital. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. This is the second part of the interview with Richard Blakesley, CEO of VentureCute. Having spoken about rating ed companies in part one, in this episode, we discuss the size of the funding gap, how the market might close it, and the possible role of indexing passive investment in doing so. For those who missed the first episode, the first few minutes repeat from that one to give some context. If you're listening back to back, you can jump to six minutes in. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe to all good podcast services or following the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonico.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. This is something that always intrigues me because I see a lot of fund managers and typically they'll say, yeah, we get 1,000 to 2,000 approaches a year. That's this kind of ballpark that most managers talk about. Some do a bit more, some do a bit less. But that, that, yeah, that's sort of the ballpark. And they'll invest in less than 10. So, you know, 10, 10 out of 1,000 or 10 out of 2,000, that's half to 1%. And, and in some cases, they're doing less because they're doing follow-ons and whatever. But as you say, that's about criteria. And certainly, you know, I know, I know there's funding index out there that say there's all these companies looking for money. Therefore, there's a shortage of money. But that's just people who say, I want money. It doesn't say, I'm a good company to be invested or I deserve investment. So you say that 8% is, so that's 8% that people have invested in. No, that's 8% of the companies that ought to be investable, that theoretically there's an investor out there for, if there were enough money. <laughs> so of that eight percent, you know, if you're saying, well, half percent one place, and and you know, all these fund managers are seeing overlapping, but not necessarily entirely overlapping sort of sets of of, of these things. Of that eight percent, how many do you think are actually getting funding? If we run the numbers, and these don't they don't correlate exactly um, to the eight percent, half percent that we've just been through. There are about 40,000 high-growth startups created in the UK each year. Yeah. That's a bit of an estimate, but it comes from ONS data and is a subset of the something like 700,000 companies of any kind that get registered in the UK per year. And, and from what both have said, I think, I think that's the ballpark of Bluehurst as well. Now, what that suggests is that at any one time, you've got, say, three years worth of companies who are looking to raise money. And that might be the same company raising money twice during that three-year period. It might be that there are more than three years worth of companies because some will have slow starts because they have long research-intensive business models and so forth. But if we say that there are 100,000-plus companies at any one time that are theoretically looking for funding, which is plus or minus three years worth of startups. And if we know that at pre-seed and seed, there are two to two and a half thousand investments completed per year, then there's roughly a four times shortfall in the amount of actual fundraisers. It should be that of those eight of those hundred thousand companies, eight percent, eight thousand. Are getting funded. In fact, only two thousand are. And that's a big gap. That is a big gap, but it's a 
phenomenally exciting gap. And it's actually the gap here. Let's just disappear down a rabbit hole for a second. It's the gap that the whole pension reform conversation as it relates to investment in private assets could have a meaningful difference in uh, fixing. Because imagine the impact on the economy if four times as many early stage startups were invested in as currently happens today. Four times as many at pre-seed seed stage. You'd imagine, therefore, four times as many at Series A, four times as many at Series B, and ultimately four times as many unicorns, whatever that means these days. Uh, that decacorns, I believe, are the trendy phrase. Unicorns aren't enough anymore. <laughs> okay. uh, but Im- imagine the impact on job creation. Imagine the impact on social mobility. Because a lot of that gap, by the way, is those underrepresented founders who can't find their way into the right place to have the right conversation with the right investor as easily. That is phenomenally exciting. Yeah, and, and, and that, that raises, I don't know if it's a problem or a concern or, or whatever. So it's one of the things that makes me slightly nervous about this sort of pension sort of thing is that if you take all this money and pump it through the existing channels, there's a danger that it's the same companies that are getting the investment. And all we see is inflated valuations. We don't necessarily see an increased diversification of companies that are getting the money. Now, conscious of your core audience for this podcast, a a balanced response to this is really important. There is recent evidence, specifically through COVID, of exactly this issue. And the ways in which some forms of support for early stage investment were and continue to be deployed, actually meaning that the existing not always optimized distribution models for funding are being um, extended, supported, whereas actually we should be looking at additionality, which is, I believe, a core feature of most of the rationale for state funding, but which doesn't seem necessarily always to be put into practice when it comes to the funding schemes that have been in place for the last uh, four years or so. Entirely new forms of funding, entirely new channels are really important and actually only entirely new channels would be able to accommodate pension funding because existing channels don't meet the basic criteria of the pension fund industry as far as scale is concerned, as far as reporting criteria are concerned, as far as fees are concerned, and various other factors. So lots of really important and valuable discussion about pension fund involvement, which I passionately believe in, some very, very basic roadblocks that people aren't spending much time talking about in that debate at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think there's been the case of the industry has been get that hurdle about opening up the doors. And then it's like, yeah, I I suspect there's a sort of, you know, having got that, well, not quite there yet, because it's it's, it's technically, I don't think the law's in place. But we, we, we know it's coming sometime in the future. But it's a case of, Having opened that door, there might never just be this, oh no, what have we done kind of thing going on. The VC industry needs to change dramatically 
from its current practices and structures in order to accommodate uh, institutional funding at a greater scale. And I'm not totally convinced that um, the right proportion of the venture capital marketplace is willing to do that yet. Uh, it's a reasonably comfortable industry. I mean, despite the fact that it's fantastically difficult to raise funds and to even to raise follow-on and um, uh, set third and fourth funds. Uh, but nonetheless, there's, I talk about it sometimes as being a little bit of a cottage industry in places where... Mm. You're not the first person on the podcast who's said that. It's, it's manual practices, if you like, where the odd production line might make quite a significant difference. And completely understanding the importance of active managers, nonetheless, there's a space for passive as well and for higher volume approaches to investment alongside the active managers. There's actually a piece in the FT this morning that caught my eye which talked about the fact that some of the most celebrated active long-only equities managers in the public space are seeing significant fund outflows in favour of passive funds, despite their historically uh, outperformance. That's the continuation of a trend towards passive away from active. There's always going to be space for active managers, the best active managers, but there are a lot of active managers that aren't necessarily generating the outcomes that their LPs are looking for. The idea of indexing in venture has cropped up a couple of times in the past. And, and for the interest of the listeners, way back, I think, Andy Davidson in episode seven or something, I think, I think, I think we talked about it. So this is going back three years. But it's, it's not straightforward. And, you, I mean, you see a lot of data. So, you know, if, if you invest, I think it works on a secondary market because, or it works easily on a secondary market because there's always a company, it's, the shares are trading, you just sort of tag along with everybody else. In venture, if every investor in a venture company is passive, the company then doesn't have any support or may not have the right support. Can I challenge that? Go on. As the industry stands today, you're absolutely right. There's a fallacy in my perhaps not so humble opinion, mm-hmm. which is the ability to provide support and the ability to provide investment can be seen and should be seen, I think, more frequently as two completely separate things. It could be, yeah. An investor ought to be making an investment in a business based on shared views of potential future value creation and longevity of investment. Mm -hmm. And the business should be looking as broadly as possible to identify the people that are going to be most able to support it. And quite often, the combination of investment and support from the same individual or group can actually lead to conflicts of interest. So the idea that you might be able to separate out the coaching, mentorship, advice, board membership, consultancy from the investor side of things is really intriguing to me. And the idea that you could build a passive fund that is 
organizing very active support for its portfolio companies is a dream for the future and a really interesting concept. Let's identify the best possible support for this business, having made an investment in it. And it doesn't really matter at that point whether you've got all passive or some passive and some active investors in that business. What all investors should be confident about is the fact that the best possible support is being found and delivered to those businesses to maximize their chances of success. Well, I, I, th- I think there's a couple of things in there. So, so coming back to conflicts of interest, I think the venture industry has ironed some of those out. I'm not saying they've ironed all of those out. Certainly, yeah, there's a very good book I'll put, I'll put in the show notes 20 years ago, which was the, the creation of Front Page. And the conflict between the founder and the venture, the venture investor was huge. And some of that was, he, the guy would admit, was his own ego, but some of it was because there were issues that were not standardized. And some of the issues are now standardized, and hence people understand that. So, so those conflicts, they're not necessarily gone, but there are processes for handling all the, all the sort of smoothed over. Um, that doesn't mean yes. they've all gone away, um, you know, as preference stacks. In particular, I think distort things, but there's also I think the other thing is that there's this alignment of interest in terms of if someone's invested, there's that alignment of interest. They are motivated to get that invest or, or to give that support. And a lot of good venture investors separate portfolio and investment functions so that you know you've got investors on side doing this goes right, and then here's the guy who can actually support you coming in. So, you, so you've got that internally in fund managers a little bit, but not, but not necessarily separated out the way you're talking about. Uh, th- that is right. And I completely agree that it's not where it was mm-hmm. and that you've got much less of a chance of conflict, for example, between an investee and a VC these days than you do potentially between a, uh, an investee and an angel investor, where the, the issue may be greater. But I do think where this gets us to is something around what the role of the VC is mm-hmm. and the fund manager element of it, which is the portfolio construction and balancing is one side of things. So which investments do you select to create the portfolio, which overall has the best possibility of risk mitigation and reward creation? versus then the active management of that, the portfolio constituents, to ensure their success. And and I think there is sometimes some interesting confusion around what fund managers are selling to their LPs as their core competence. And that might be a feature of the fact that in most cases, at least, it's a still somewhat immature industry compared to quite a lot of other asset classes. But segue back to your previous question mm-hmm. or comment, David. <laughs> One of the things that might help to, in the maturity of the industry is benchmarking. So benchmarking suggests some sort of index. Now, you, to some degree, 
Fitchbook, um, whatever, you know, Bohurst. They don't have benchmarks per se, but they have data of some description that uh, people can, to some extent, benchmark against whether performance or you know, performance of investments or performance within companies. Are you talking about a, a universal index here, or are you saying, okay, we need, you know, what, what sort of benchmarking do you think we should we need? So this is a real brain strain because creating a private market index or benchmark is not trivial. And the purpose of it is one of the key things to, to start off on. But just to put this in context, from my perspective, if I can create a broadly used rating system that enough members of the industry buy into, then the data that spins off that activity can be used to create um, because it'll be high volume data mm-hmm. can be used to generate benchmarks and indices, which hopefully that same industry or a significant proportion of that industry will see as being valuable comparators to their own activities. If ultimately you can create an index, and this has been done in nearly all other asset classes, including some private asset classes that has sufficient validity and where the underlying asset base is large enough, then potentially we move towards the dream of liquidity for investors. So the ability to choose the time at which they buy into or out of this asset class. That's my historical investment banker side uh, kicking in and saying, well, actually, wouldn't that be great? That's the, that's the creation of a, of, a, of a new asset, if you like. Yeah, that's deeply problematic in the sense, you know, because the jump from, hey, we've got an index to that index is, in some sense, investable that you can buy in or out of. In this market, it's a huge one. And I, 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 to be honest, I don't, I'm, it's not intuitively obvious to me how you bridge that gap. I vaguely understand how the gap can be bridged, but quite a lot's got to happen in the meantime. And one of the things that's got to happen in the meantime, actually, is for the industry to become bigger. Uh, Currently, we've got an industry which is a couple of hundred billion of investments per year globally. And that's obviously relatively small as an asset class. And I think we probably need to get closer to the industry's potential, which is that sort of four times, in order to create something which could end up being tradable. Now, in the meantime, Mm -hmm. what could an index do? I mean, the key thing is actually to benchmark. So if we've got a means of assessing numerically large numbers of businesses and the ability to track those businesses through a rating system, then ultimately we can create a benchmark which can be used within the industry as a means of assessing not only the validity of a particular startup's business model, but also the potential for a portfolio, an investment portfolio. And uh, the performance of that investment portfolio versus the benchmark. So 
Yes, I think where most other people are at the moment, Bohurst, Pitchbrook and others, is in the phase of having data that can be compiled into reports which are very useful for context. Yeah. As you put it, they, no, nobody has yet got to the point of saying this is the index. I think probably the closest thing to that is the British Business Bank's uh, venture capital reviews where they look at um, historical performance. But obviously, in a sector like this, where you've got long investment hold periods and limited information on performance between original investment and exit, it's not that easy. Well, but, this is something uh, I was going to... There are clever things you can do there. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me this is one of the challenges in that, you know, certainly... In the in this industry, exits are kind of everything because you know you you, you can't eat an unrealized value or unrealized re- revaluation. Um, but at the same time, unrealized valuations are just that, and they and they they can go up further. They can also go down. Increasingly, FCA is moving people away from the only objective measure, which is the last transaction price, because they're saying, well, actually, if that's eighteen months ago. How relevant is it? And 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 in some sense, they're right. So if you're creating an index, exits in one in one sense are quite easy to handle. They take time to get, but they're easy. but how do you handle that in between? Because you know, I, again, we've seen VCTs putting different valuations on companies, and both are reasonable in their own context. Well, I think what you can do is you can create tools to make that uh, intermediate valuation. Uh, more useful. So if we start to be able to spot trends in terms of the growth curve of different types of business, and if we're able to start plotting how um, certain businesses are performing versus others in sectors at stages of evolution, then you start to create that price versus value differential, which is effectively at the heart of indexing and ultimately liquidity. Price, pay for it, value what it's worth on paper. And the index is obviously about the value side of things. Uh If there's an index which says uh, overall a basket of startups of this type, of this vintage, has increased in value by 5% 5% over this time period, then that's a decent guide for an individual manager, both to compare their own experience with that index, but also to help them ballpark any intermediate valuation that they're asked to make. So, um, or at least to be able to explain the differential between an index and their own decisions about valuation. Uh, that's transparency or an improvement in transparency. And as you point out, this, the area that the FCA tends to be seems to be moving towards. Yeah, I, and uh, I guess the other challenge for an index in that perspective is that it's a huge data effort because then you're going to have to start collecting performance data, KPIs or whatever, from within private companies on some sort of uniform basis and aggregate that 
which is... Um, hey, that's a revolutionary concept, isn't it? <laughs> Capturing data on portfolio companies. Wow. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. Well, but, but managers um, doing it, but everyone's collecting different ways, different, you know, so many are creating their own systems, you know, they're, 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 you know, and again, we look at, you know, Bohurst are pooling data, but they only get the company accounts, which are six months, eight months after a year end. And hence, in a fact, fast growing company, that's, you know, already out of date. Yeah, I mean, yes, exactly. And and the other issue, obviously, from from that perspective, is that Bohas typically is only seeing information about deals that have been done and not deals that haven't been done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a that's not necessarily a limitation in terms of the service that they're providing, but it is only part of the story. But again, here we are, 2024. The ability for significant amounts of data to be captured passively and compiled systematically. Uh, is so much greater than it was even 12, 18 months ago. And the idea that portfolio companies, as opposed to providing a board report once every two months or whatever it is that they're being asked to do in the VC's format or whatever else it might be, there's some really interesting tools out there now which are effectively passively capturing data from individual portfolio companies and compiling them automatically into monthly reports. And you can see where that process is turning to. This was the forecast for what was meant to happen this month. This is what's actually happened. Uh, scrape data from Zero or QuickBooks, scrape data from Google Analytics, wherever else you can scrape data from and compile a report which is demonstrating the direction of travel versus expectations. Um, So there's an enormous amount more that can be done there without necessarily occupying a massive amount of human time. And if that's transparency and efficiency and more accurate benchmarking, then I'm all for it. But I would say that, wouldn't I? (laughs) Well, we don't let you... Yeah, I, I, I... I, I think there's always also that sort of protection of data, confidentiality. If, if I was a private company, I want to know who who I'm sending my accounting data to, and they're not going to necessarily publish it to my competition or whatever. So, so but that, that that's relatively minor in a way, but it's, it's, it's probably going to be a, another barrier. I think it is relatively minor. So many of us so routinely click accept terms and conditions on all kinds of different things in our daily lives. Um, yes, obviously, data protection is a massive issue, but also there are some pretty straightforward ways to ensure anonymization of data. And unless you get you know, malicious activity, again, there's protection available for that. Uh, aggregation of data in an anonymized form to inform the marketplace, I think, is a great deal easier now than it was. And could be a huge benefit to the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and transparency and more data is always welcome, so long as we can get it in the right way. I want to return this idea of the index and investability because I wonder what the, the eventual model for that might be. Because I, I listening to you, I can hear kind of two or three ideas that automatically spring to mind. One is you say saying this eight percent of companies investable, and you know only. Or whatever, you know, whatever is proven that it's genuinely investable, and only a quarter of those are getting. Would the dream be that 
other fund managers spring up to fill that gap, say, take this and say, actually, here's this, all these companies people aren't looking at. So, you know, with the female founders or, you know, or whatever it is, or saying we create, there's a passive fund and maybe whether it's BBI or some pension fund says, actually, we just say, right, okay, we kind of trust this index a little bit and we're just going to invest en masse and sort of say, well, actually, you know, if 8% succeed, you know, whatever, you know, we're going to trust the date succeed and, you know, they're genuine passive. I suppose I think of more quant than passive in terms of, you know, there's a process there. How do you see the market? How would you like to see the market evolve to use that? First, very obvious thing to say is that I'd love to see the market absorbing all of the demand mm-hmm. because that's just great for everybody. Yeah. More deals done. Uh, more good deals done, obviously, is the point. And the supposition from the numbers that we've been through is that there are many more deals to be done that are, to, there are, are of like quality to the deals that are actually getting done. Right. So by doing more deals across the market, you're not diluting quality. So that's the first premise, um, supported by all of the data that I've managed to collect in the last little while. The way in which I'd love to see the market evolving has a few different facets to it. And interestingly there, in your question, rating an index sort of conflated a little bit in the way in which you expressed the question. (laughs) And then you brought quant into it as well. And, and, And I think there's a really good model here. If we look at what's happened in public markets, public equity markets specifically, over the last 25 years. 25 years ago, there wasn't a passive fund in sight. And now we've got pretty much 50-50 between active and passively managed equity funds. Obviously, the passive funds are following indices, tracking indices. And they're tracking indices based on assessments of businesses, based on certain criteria. Mm-hmm. A FTSE tracker, an S&P 500 tracker, uh, an ESG tracker, whatever else it might be. Effectively, those are all forms of rating because they're either filtering businesses based on certain different criteria or they're um, measuring them based on market cap, for example. So quite a lot of what I'm hoping to see in the industry is based around how close can we get to that public market model, because that public market model will ensure maximum efficiency in matching available capital to underlying businesses. If you think of the marketplace as having a large pool of capital providers, and obviously the the biggest capital providers are the biggest funds, um, the insurance funds, the pension funds, and so forth. And all of the various gaps between those large capital providers and the underlying assets, it's really about what do you need to do to break down those gaps or those barriers. And as we talked about a little bit earlier, those come into data provision, so the ability to report accurately 
because you have data available. They come down to the right um, investment structure, so the right type of investment vehicle. Scale, because big funds can't make lots and lots of little investments. It's simply inefficient. Fees. And, yeah, liquidity. It's quite important for most institutional investors that they have the ability to get in and out. And we've seen examples in recent years of where even supposedly liquid funds have struggled. Uh, Woodford's a very good example because of the inability to liquidate assets that were less liquid than perhaps they were believed to be. And that, by the way, is the key issue to creating a tradable index. It's hedging. It's the ability for, if, if somebody wants to come and sell the index, how do you sell the underlying in order to return capital to that seller? If the underlying is illiquid. Yeah, because you, you end up with two kinds of structures. So one would be the ETF type thing, in a sense where the ETF is actually buying, selling the underlying things, or it's selling a future. So if you get to a future, I guess that, that is probably the dream scenario because futures bring inherent liquidity. Or you end up with the sort of closed-end vehicle type thing where you're saying, okay, we have a, a, a fixed pool of capital in a sense, and the market price may be higher or lower, um, looking at all the, you know, the vehicles we have, significantly lower than the asset value just now. But that's partially because they don't believe the asset value a little bit, and, and, and we have seen some of those come down. Um, but that does create a, it, it allows for liquidity, but not necessarily at the index value. So, so, but, so neither's perfect here, but neither's perfect. And by the way, I've had various conversations in the past where people have said, "Oh well, just tokenize it." That's not the answer. That's just another <laughs> form of the same potentially liquid instrument. So. Um, Synthetic versus physical, as you say, closed end versus open. There are various different ways in which we can approach this. Ultimately, in order to get anywhere with this scale, I think is the key place to, to target. Mm-hmm. The, that's got to come before anything else. That's got to come before anything else. And that means how do we break down those barriers between the large investors and the individually small assets? How do we actually create the opportunity to create big portfolios uh, which are of sufficient size that a pension fund can write a decent check? And that is about creating passive funds. It's about creating funds which, where the investment is systematic and where I want to see the industry going is building funds which are making systematic investment decisions based on, for example, a venture cube rating on the basis that not only does that match the capital to the need for capital better, so it's, more, it's an additional source of capital into a space which, as we've described, is capital constrained but also it provides better investment outcomes. Because, not touched on this yet, the evidence is so clear that bigger, more diversified, more diverse portfolios will always outperform smaller 
portfolios. Sorry, not always, because there are always going to be outliers. Um, you're going to have some great active managers that knock the cover off the ball. Mm-hmm. But the performance of a large, diversified, diverse passive fund is going to significantly outperform the median of all active managers and at lower cost. So there's a volatility question. So you're reducing volatility uh, and you're not losing alpha as you reduce volatility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so there's a lot in there. Um, there's research out there, which I think, I can't remember if it's cited on this podcast before, but certainly uh, we had uh, Graham Swickard from Syndicate Room talking about how when you increase portfolio size, then you, you know, their modeling shows historically that can improve returns. Um, and there's some theoretical work done by a guy called Jerry Newman. And he's also shown if you model things using power laws and a certain sort of power law, then more, more companies should lead to better returns. So, so there's both empirical and theoretical foundation that says that kind of thing is true. It's something I think a lot of people struggle to accept because it actually feels a little bit intuitive in our, we're used to the normal statistics world. And this power law world is that little bit different. The way I tend to explain it is the value of an individual loss is in a, in a big portfolio almost irrelevant in the context of a single uh, outperformance. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a fund, just for the sake of argument, that's making a whole load of investments of 100,000 each, losing a single investment of 100,000 will pale into insignificance in the context of the expected overall rate of return of that portfolio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a high growth asset class, early stage, highest, steepest point of the growth curve. And the rate of value increase quickly outstrips the losses. So it's the ideal asset class for diversification. Because any even half decent return on even a modest percentage of the portfolio will quickly outstrip the losses that will inevitably occur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the other analogy I sometimes use is that if you had Google in your portfolio, it doesn't matter what everything, you know, if you, if you were a seed investor in Google, it wouldn't matter what, you know, how big the rest of your portfolio was or how many investments you had or what they did, you would have a splendid return. And essentially, you're saying, if I've got 10 investments, my chances of having a Google-esque thing are pretty much nil. If I have 1,000 investments, well, suddenly your odds look, you know, and it doesn't necessarily be a Google. It might be a Salesforce or, you know, a Slack. I'm just going to pick some random names. Having one or two of those would give you a good return. So this is where my understanding of how this sort of diversification or improving returns by improving diversification um, can sort of work. A slightly different argument based on our analysis on this. Yes, I agree with what you've said. However, um, there's a sort of a mean reversion point as well. The bigger the portfolio, the more likely you are to get to the mean of um, 
of individual performance or average individual performance, right? Which is to say, if all of your portfolio performed in an average manner and increased in value over 10 years, you know, doubled in value or whatever. 20 odd percent seem to be, what's that say? And that's good. Yeah. And the Googles are cherries on the top mm-hmm. as opposed to having to be the drivers. And there's a little bit, I think, in uh, the marketplace at the moment of saying, let's make our 10 investments in our fund and hope and pray that one of them does really, really well because we sort of know the others won't, as opposed to let's build a group of businesses that we believe will all do well enough and within which there'll be some outliers. So if we can eradicate to the extent possible the failure rate, Uh can't eradicate it, but if you can reduce it, if you can provide all of that support that we've been talking about to ensure that you're maximizing the potential for each business to be successful, and if you can build a diverse enough portfolio that extraneous factors and macro trends don't impact everything equally, then actually you're more reliant on decent performance from a large percentage as opposed to massive outlier performance by a very small percentage. And that's, if you like, a a better, safer model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it comes back to that investment idea of sex investment is not so much about finding the winners but avoiding the losers kind of thing. You know, so one one of the things about an index, and one of the reasons why I'm not sure about this passive thing, is that you don't in the market? It's very tempting to say index equals the companies that want to raise money, whereas it's not the companies that all the companies that want to raise money. It's the good companies in whatever set, however you define that. So therefore, in a sense, you know, in a, in a bit like coin investment, you want to follow the money. So this is why I wonder, I mean, the other model, which I I didn't mention a few minutes ago, is the BBI one of the co-investments, where you've got someone saying, right, we will take, you know, there's a pot of money and we will take 20% of every every investment you make or whatever. And I don't know if there's a role in here for the BBI to sort of say, right, actually, we do this across the market and everyone can pile it in. Or if they say, well, actually, this is the model we might like and we'll encourage a private, you know, because that's squeezing out people a little bit, and they might want to say, right, we'd rather have, um, you know, whether it's BlackRock or, or or whoever come in, or one of the existing fund managers might sort of say, well, actually, I fancy a go at that, um, and say, right, we can do as a private enterprise, but BBI will kind of co-sponsor us to um, take that proportion of investments. But it seems to me that's almost the model. I mean, if you can get to that, that might be a way forward. Well, just taking that thought and going back to how would I like to see the industry evolving? Mm-hmm. A rating tool and a passive fund model can ha- have the potential to become economic development tools, not just in the UK, but more broadly for lesser developed markets building that transparency and the ability to 
uh, feed investment into qualifying businesses more efficiently in some kind of a public plus private sector manner. So everywhere, I mean, across every single region of the UK and most countries have got innovation budgets. And exploring the potential for bringing together public money and private money to increase the rate of investment into more promising businesses using systematic models is, it seems to be a natural partnership. I would have to argue that quite a lot of innovation budgets currently don't get deployed very efficiently and or the outcomes from that innovation budget spend is difficult to measure and possibly just poor. So uh, a way of directly getting money where it's needed uh, to create value, jobs, social mobility is a quite interesting point and one that we're hoping to continue to explore. Yeah, that I, I, I could carry on discussing this topic for, uh, for, for forever, but I'm conscious we've kept you a while already. So we may come back to this another date, um, but I think on that topic saying it might be way forward, uh, we shall move on to our favourite questions. Very good. And we'll throw these at you and we'll get your thoughts. We won't give them all because you're, you're not a fund manager. And I think we've already discussed it about what's important in the market. Um, so tell us about the time you failed and what you learned from it. Um, here's a very interesting and recent example, right? And I think um, almost you know, marginally intriguing that I'd be, I'd be mentioning it. But actually, it's about the failure of the capital pilot business, which is, if you like, the uh, my experience in the rating world prior to this. And that business was placed into administration in October mm-hmm. and the team was made redundant and that was a massive and you know very sorry event and something that I felt very deeply. Um, reasons why a manifold. Uh, ultimately, we had a business whose revenue disappeared off the edge of a cliff and that had a cost base that was not sustainable in a marketplace where it was very difficult to raise money. Fascinating, if you like, that this was a business that was focused on investment, but was actually a startup. Right. Um, So lots to learn from that, but that would rank uh, right up there as something which um, you feel like I'm determined to work beyond and more determined than ever to create a business which is going to succeed where the, the previous business unfortunately didn't. We, we, we certainly wish you every luck for doing that. Um, so the EIS and VCT industry that we're working is great in many ways, but it's far from perfect. Maybe we've already discussed this a little bit already, but what would you change about it? The EIS VCT world is absolutely amazing. And still today, I think the end of the big chunks of the world. And I think the bit that I find most uh, disappointing, really, is the way in which, from a regulatory perspective, the asset class is still deemed to be 
at the top end of the risk spectrum. Because mm-hmm. actually, really, it isn't with the tax incentives. And secondly, going back to the previous part of the conversation, the risk can be so massively mitigated if you get the portfolio construction right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a huge potential. I mean, imagine a big SEIS fund, for example, with hundreds of components. Is that high risk? I would say not compared to quite a lot of other things out there. There was an article in Institutional Investor three, four years ago where someone did some modeling. And they showed that if they had a portfolio of 500 venture investments, this was Monte Carlo simulate of, of history, the portfolio volatility was lower than for an equity portfolio of comparable size. Correct. We've run the same analysis, lower volatility and better returns than NASDAQ for a portfolio of 100. So I think it's that, that element which I'd love to see change. and. Um, uh, other than that, leave well alone because they are fantastic opportunities for people to be encouraged into an asset class which really should be value creative in a significant way over the long term. Okay. So, as regular listeners know, I'm an avid reader and always looking out for suggestions for books, although I did get a pile for Christmas, so I don't feel an urgent need. Um, but is there anything out there you like and recommend? Can I have two? Absolutely. So these, these, these span, if you like, the business world and, and, and um, more uh, broad interests. So from the business perspective, uh, a book called Super Forecasting by mm. Philip Tetlock. Yes. And this, I don't know if you've read it, this is a guy who ran a program with the CIA to try and identify why the CIA wasn't very good at forecasting macro events. And interestingly... Um, his methodology was to get groups of gifted amateurs to take these big problems that the CIA was trying to solve and break these big problems down into very small problems and have gifted amateurs make micro judgments mm-hmm. on the small problems that were part of the big problem and then aggregate it all up to an overall view. And what he found was the central problem was the use of the talking head expert mm-hmm. in providing advice to organizations like the CIA. So the individual who has become famous for a certain point of view and therefore has to maintain that point of view because it was the point of view that made them famous. And so is less flexible. We see those in equity markets all the time. The perma bears, for example. And, um, and the value of the, of the gifted amateur. So basic common sense approach to breaking down big knotty problems into lots of smaller problems and then aggregating up the results. That's effectively what our rating system does. So that's the business book. Yeah. And, and I'll just add one point on that, which I think, I think is important, is that I thought the, the whole process of getting feedback, so they get people to sign probabilities and then get feedback. And I think that process is, is helpful for investors because it's something I start, I've started to think about more since I read it in terms of, okay, What's the probability this stock's going to be successful two-thirds, one-third, half? You know, I'm not going, as you say, to two decimal places, but you know, just, just thinking about that, I find very, very helpful. And here's another spoiler for everybody then before they read the book, but it's, it's just triggered this other thought. 
building on not just you, you are forced to put a probability on your expectation and create a conviction score, separating the probability from your conviction was an important element as well. Um, you're going to have to make a bet, like it or not. But don't mean revert in your judgment, because that's the job of the conviction rating. I'm, th- I'm very convinced, I'm not that convinced, takes the place of mean reversion, which is a really important factor as well. And the second book is a Christmas book, um, and it's called Walking the Bones. And this is Christopher Somerville. And Walking the Bones, uh, Walking the Bones of Britain is a book about the geology of the British Isles in the form of a walk from the Isle of Lewis up beyond your territory, right down to the southeast of England. Okay. Um, and it's a sort of a, a geology walk. And it captures the natural world. It captures the, what's underneath the turf that you're plodding along. Mm-hmm. So lots of sort of ancient prehistoric history along with nature and captures one of my key passions, which is getting out into the fresh air and finding hills to climb. Yes. Well, I quite like doing that too. So that sounds, I haven't heard or even heard of that one. So I'm definitely going to add that to my shopping list. Um, so thank you very much for that. So what do you wish you knew when you started Venture Capital that you know now? Interestingly, I think my response to that is the same as if you'd asked me the question and said startup instead of venture capital. There's an anomaly between the statistical probability of success and the headspace you must be in as an investor or as a founder in order to want to go through all the pain. Mm. So we have to be optimistic. We have to assume we're going to do better than average and have better outcomes in the market overall. But statistically, the, the, the probability is that we won't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is risk-reward again. What does that turn into? It actually gets us back into a more numerical focus on outcomes. I am not necessarily a better stock picker than this other person. I am not necessarily more likely to be successful with my startup business than this other startup founder. But accepting that and doing whatever I can to mitigate the risks as well as striving to pick a success. So I think it's that. It's that big picture view of success potential and the indefinable risk of failure. So if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at VentureCubed, where should they go? It's a very new business, as I said. VentureCubed.com is the website. And Richard at VentureCubed.com is where you can find me. There will be, over time, uh, information both on my LinkedIn and on the website about our view of the world of investing in early stage businesses and obviously always delighted to speak to people to exchange thoughts on the marketplace, which I think has got massive potential and uh, which I'm uh, committed to trying to explore in the coming years. 
Well, I shall look forward to seeing more on that. And and as you build out the Venture Cube website, I shall be watching with interest. And and then not just the website, but your, all your activities. So thank you very much for coming on today, Richard. Really enjoyed speaking to you. And uh, I hope the listeners enjoyed that too. Thank you, Brian. I think this is a very important discussion for the venture capital market. If it works, passive and index investing could be very important for growing both it and the economy. Thanks to Richard for bringing some big ideas. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonico.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. If you like what you hear, please give us a review with lots of stars on your favorite podcast app. We can be contacted at inquiries at harmonico.com. Thanks for listening. I will be back in two weeks time.